Angie's List is now Angie, the nation's largest home service marketplace. And they are here to help homeowners get all their jobs done well. Angie has helped over 150 million homeowners care for their homes. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, come to Angie to connect with and hire skilled professionals to get the job done well. Have you had a leaky roof? We did, and it was a nightmare. But through Angie, we found an amazing roofer who specialized in flat roofs, and he fixed it right and quickly. Angie can help you find the best price for your project. Angie lets you request and compare quotes from multiple pros in just a few taps or book services at an upfront price based on local data. Angie has cost guides that tell you what others have paid for similar projects, both nationally and in your area. Get started at Angie.com, that's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. The app and website are both free to use. That's Angie.com. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. Remember Martha Mitchell? If you're of a certain age that is old enough to remember Watergate, then you probably certainly remember Martha Mitchell. If you're a young'un, let me tell you about Martha Mitchell. Martha Mitchell uh, was a, uh, a sweet lady. She was born in 1918, Died in 1976. We'll get to that in just a minute. Uh, she married John Mitchell in 1957. And they had a daughter who was born in 61. But the, uh, the, the, the really pivotal time was 1972, right after the break-in. The Watergate break-in was reported in the Washington Post. Her husband, John Mitchell, who was Attorney General of the United States, hired a former FBI agent by the name of Steve King to basically lock down Martha. And uh, because Martha was freaked out, her daughter's bodyguard and driver, James McCord, was one of the guys who got arrested at the Watergate. And so Martha was like, oh, my God, you know, this is my family. Plus, her husband, you know, was the chief law enforcement officer of the country. And so she gets on the phone with Helen Thomas, uh, who was with The Washington Post at that time, or maybe the Associated Press. I think AP. Helen Thomas was always with the AP. And uh, this FBI agent, Steve King, pulls the telephone wire literally out of the wall. She fights back. They kidnap her. They take her to California. They stick her in a hotel room. A psychiatrist comes in, shoots her up with sedative drugs. After a physical struggle with five men on behalf of her husband and this former FBI agent, Steve King, beat her up so badly she needed stitches. Richard Nixon himself told David Frost after he resigned, and I quote, if it hadn't been for Martha Mitchell, there'd have been no Watergate. And two years after all this happened in 1974, two years later in 1976, Martha Mitchell suddenly slips into a coma and dies. Oh, she's got multiple myeloma. It's a cancer. And there's, you know, to this day, people going, really? Okay, so I tell you that story because there's a bunch of people who are really wondering what the heck is going on with Melania Trump. She has vanished. It's been like 21, 22 days since, since anybody ha- has seen her in public or she has spoken in public. She sent out a tweet yesterday in response to this. But did she send this tweet? I mean, rest assured is a phrase that even... People like, you know, people like me, I mean, you know, grew up, I grew up American. I grew up Midwest. I grew up with normal American English, but both my parents were college educated. But, you know, rest assured is the kind of thing that comes out of a PR hack, right? I mean, 
you don't you don't say to your oh rest assured everything's going to be fine. Well, anyhow, here's her tweet. I see the media is working overtime speculating where I am and what I'm doing. Rest assured, I'm here at the White House with my family, feeling great and working hard on behalf of children and the American people. Melania Trump didn't write that. At least it sure doesn't sound like anything that Melania Trump wrote or has ever written in the past. Now, I did quickly check out uh, Michelle Obama's Twitter feed to see if she had said, hey, uh, you know, nobody's heard from me in a little while. Rest assured, I'm fine. Uh, because whatever, uh, whatever uh, Michelle Obama says, Melania tends to say somewhat later. But no, it uh, didn't happen. And uh, there's a whole bunch of people on Twitter going, hmm? Whoa? But I think bigger news coming out of the Trump White House right now. So, you know, where do you think Melania is? Is she hiding? Is she, uh, I mean, you know, a lot of possibilities here. Is, you know, what could it be? Did she escape through the sinkhole in the White House lawn? You know, there was a sinkhole a year ago in Mar-a-Lago, and then there's a sinkhole in the White House lawn uh, last week. And, you know, is, this, is, is she trying to tunnel out? Is she being held captive? I mean, I'd like to see a picture of her holding a newspaper with today's date on it. Then I might, you know, relax. But meanwhile, Donald Trump uh, just pardoned Dinesh D'Souza. This is part of his campaign, in my opinion. This is part of his campaign to reassure people like Paul Manafort and Michael Cohen that if you just hold strong, if you just keep faith, if you just do what I tell you, implicitly, and, you know, gum up the investigation and don't testify, then I will pardon you. If you do like Scooter Libby did, right? Commit a crime, but then stay loyal to, to in the Scooter Libby's case, he wouldn't rat out Dick Cheney for, for outing a CIA officer. So Scooter Libby took the rap. Donald Trump pardoned him. So here we got Dinesh D'Souza. This is a guy who pled guilty to a federal felony of uh, illegal campaign contributions, using a straw donor to make illegal campaign contributions. He was sentenced to five years of probation, eight months in a halfway house, and a $30,000 fine. This is the guy, just so you know who we're talking about here. Dinesh D'Souza uh, is a, an immigrant from India who became a naturalized U.S. citizen. Hard, hard, hard right wing. He wrote a book, for example, called The Enemy at Home, The Cultural Left and Its Responsibility for 9-11. Yep, you got it. Liberals are responsible for 9-11. In fact, he, he wrote, and I quote, the cultural left in this country is responsible for causing 9-11. The cultural left and its allies in Congress, the media, Hollywood, the nonprofit sector, and the universities are the primary cause of the volcano of anger toward America that is erupting from the Islamic world. No, it's got nothing to do with the fact that George W. Bush lied us into a war in Iraq and stupidly went into a war in Afghanistan and blew up and killed, uh, you know, literally millions of Iraqis and Afghan, uh, Afghans. I think Afghan is the right word. Certainly displaced multiple millions. Maybe he only killed a couple hundred thousand. But you think that might have something to do with why they're pissed off at us? I suspect so. But Dinesh D'Souza, no. He's, it's because uh, we allow gay marriage in the United States. And no, I'm not exaggerating that. He has, he has uh, you know, riffed extensively about some of these issues. With regard to uh, Trayvon Martin, right after Trayvon Martin was shot, Dinesh D'Souza tweeted, I'm thankful this week when I remember that America is big enough and great enough to survive grown-up Trayvon in the White House. See, when Trayvon Martin was shot, Barack Obama was president. Incredible. In 2010, in Forbes magazine, Dinesh D'Souza wrote about Barack Obama and his father, who was an, uh, a, a Kenyan socialist economist. Yes, all that's true. His father was from Kenya. So, and he wrote Dreams of My Father, his book. So here's what Dinesh D'Souza writes. Incredibly, the U.S. is being ruled according to the dreams of a Luo tribesman of the 1950s. Oh, his father was a tribesman. Incredible. This philandering, inebriated African socialist is now setting the nation's agenda through the reincarnation of his dreams of, in his son. The invisible father provides the inspiration and the son dutifully gets the job done. Today, America is governed by a ghost. 
in his film about how America, how Obama secretly hates America and has only ran for president so he could destroy the country. He's written three anti-Obama books, openly flouted the law. This is the guy that Trump is now saying, yeah, oh, and, and you know, highly critical of feminism. He's the feminist error was to embrace the value of the workplace as greater than the value of the home. Yes, a woman's place is in the home, don't you know? About Abu Ghraib and the prisoner uh, abuse scandal. Oh, that's the result of the sexual immodesty of liberal America. And the, the conditions at the prison in Abu Ghraib, well, those are comparable to accommodations at mid-level Middle Eastern hotels. His tweets have mocked the survivors of the uh, Stoneman, Douglas, Stoneman Douglas High School shooting. He says this was the worst news there since their parents told them to get summer jobs, right, being, being murdered. It is just mind-boggling, right, just mind-boggling. But this is the guy that Trump said, okay, we're going we're gonna to pardon this guy because... You know, we can, we've got to tell these right-wing crazies. I mean, they're really crazy crazies. We've got to tell them that we'll take care of you. Just be there for the Trump Meister. Pretty strange stuff. So where do you think Melania is, and how far, how far do you think that they can push this thing? This is the Tom Hartman Program. In other words, how many, how many right-wingers are going to hang on and wait for the pardon versus flip? It's quite an equation. And welcome back. A couple of other stories in the news here that I wanted to share with you. Actually, this is this is uh, this is fascinating. FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA spent seventy-five million dollars, which is, by the way, more money than they spent on home rebuilding grants to all the citizens of Puerto Rico. They spent $75 million, gave it to Carnival Cruise Lines to dock a half-empty cruise ship off the coast of Puerto Rico for four months for the convenience of somebody, contractors, I guess. In its rush to secure, this is, this is uh, Babylon's sister over at, uh, Daily, or at Democratic Underground. Oh, no, this is thinkprogress.org, actually, is where this came from. Um, in its rush to secure private sector boat housing for relief workers, FEMA funneled $75 million to the Panama-based cruise line on a contract that billed the government more than twice as much per head as the company charges paying customers, contracts obtained by the Miami-based radio station WLRN show. The ugly optics of the carnival boondoggle are exacerbated by news that FEMA used less than half of the onboard housing capacity it paid the company to secure. The news of the half-empty $75 million cruise ship that FEMA called a floating hotel comes hard on the heels of a fresh estimate of the death toll from the storm, which is, you know, it's looking like five or 6,000 people died. It's pretty amazing. I mean, you know, it's, it's genuinely pretty amazing. Bill in Sebastian, Florida. Hey, Bill, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's on your mind? Yeah, good morning, Tom. Oh, good afternoon. Um, yeah, I, I was watching C-SPAN this morning, and uh, it seems to me that they, they've been given an awful lot of co coverage to the Heritage Foundation as well as uh, the Weekly Standard. And sure enough, this morning, they had some editors from the Weekly Standard with Bill Crystal mm -hmm. and Fred Barnes. And uh, with uh, Fred Barnes being there at the caucus, you know, the caucus room, the dinner they had that Fred night. Fred Barnes was not at that dinner. Oh, he wasn't at that dinner. No. So much for that. <laughs> okay. Sorry to blood to burst your bubble, but Fred Barnes was not at that dinner. Uh, okay. Wisconsin has seen the largest middle class decline of any state. This was a study from the Pew Charitable Trust. And they found that Wisconsin experienced the biggest decline in middle class households in the country in the three years between 2000 and 2013. They dropped from 54% uh, of households the percentage of households in the middle class, from 54.6, more than half, to 48.9. It's a 14% decline in median household income. And uh, it turns out the, the manufacturing jobs, this is uh, Mark Levine, a, a professor of history, or maybe it's Levine, 
I think it's Levine. He said, it turns out the manufacturing jobs aren't paying what they used to anymore. And a big chunk of that is because of the deunionization that's occurred. In the late 1960s, an estimated 35% of Wisconsin's total workforce, 50% of manufacturing workers are unionized. Today, it's 11%. He says, in Wisconsin, we've obviously gone the opposite way for the last four or three, four, three or four years. Yeah. Thanks, Scott Walker and the Koch brothers for that. We'll be right back. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Back, Tom Hartman here with you. On the line with us, Professor Richard Wolff, the economist, co-founder of Democracy at Work, author most recently of Capitalism's Crisis Deepens, essays on the global economic meltdown, democracyatwork.info and rdwolf.com are the websites. You can tweet him at democracyatwork, uh, W-R-K, or at profwolf, W-O-L-F-F. And, uh, and Professor Wolf, I, uh, if I, I saw a promo, we've got uh, Free Speech TV now on Sling, and Louise and I have Sling, and uh, so we popped it up, and there was a promo of you for a show that you're doing on Free Speech TV. Tell us about that. Well, we've been doing this for a few years. It's a weekly program devoted to kind of looking what has happened in the last week uh, that merits some attention because of its importance, particularly in terms of economics. It's both the U.S., it's global, and it's a kind of critical perspective that you won't see in the mainstream media, and it's a way for people to keep up with the economic changes that at least, in our view, are the most important uh, to keep track of. That's great. That's absolutely great. Now, I noticed that the Fed has proposed changing the Volcker Rule, and I've got a couple of questions around this. Number one, uh, you know, for people who don't know what the Volcker Rule was, can you recap that, the essence of it? Uh, number two, I thought that the, that the Volcker Rule was part of a legislative process. I thought it was part of Dodd-Frank, and uh, therefore it wouldn't be the Fed making those decisions. It would be a regulatory agency unless the Fed is taking that role. So I'm not sure how that works. And, and, what, and, and then, of course, the third question, the larger question, what will this mean for all of us? What does this mean to the American economy? Okay, let's go through basically uh, what the Volcker Rule is about. The crash back in 1929 was widely believed to have involved a basic maneuver of banks. And here's what I mean by maneuver. They accept deposits, both of individuals, uh, commercial banks do, of individuals and of companies. And they're supposed to be safekeepers. You put your money in the bank because it's holding it for you. It is acting in your interest to hold your money for you. And at the very least, it has to be very sure, so the understanding went, not to take risks with your money. It isn't their money. What the banks did before 1929 was basically interpret this understanding in a way most profitable to them, leading them to make risky investments in corporations and projects with the depositors' money. And when the crash came in 1929, and we went through the Great Depression of the 1930s, one of the results was a banking act, it was called, that specifically placed a wall between commercial banks and investment banks. This is Glass-Steagall. That's right. Uh, named after the two legislators who pushed it through Congress. That's right. And the law basically said you can't use depositors' money for risky investments. If you want to make risky investments, you as a bank have to go out and solicit investors to give you money for that purpose. That's called an investment bank. You can't function as a commercial bank taking risky bets with other people's money, namely the individuals and businesses. Glass-Steagall existed, uh, but from the very beginning, banks went to work to evade it. They made a lot of profits by using the depositors' money. Remember, then as now, they don't pay you very much for your deposit. Sometimes they pay you nothing or very low, and then they can make big returns if they invest and if, they, if it works out. So the banks wanted to be able to do that. They evaded Glass-Steagall, they watered it down, and then finally in the 1990s, under Clinton as president, they repealed it, led by the biggest banks in the country who were desperate to do that. 
literally six or seven years after they did that, we had the next great crash, 2008. Out of that came the Volcker Rule, the Dodd-Frank, and a variety of, of steps taken to reinstitute the Glass-Steagall idea, namely that banks cannot use depositors' money for risky bets. Mr. Volcker, the former head of the Federal Reserve, took the lead in pushing for this because he could see, as everybody else who pays attention could, that this was a terribly dangerous procedure. No sooner did he get it through over the opposition of the big banks than they went to work lobbying, public relations, buying politicians, all the rest, to uh, once again evade it, water it down, or if they can, get rid of it. Where we are right now is they're about to water it down. They're about to get the Federal Reserve and Congress and Mr. Trump, who's already on board for all of these things, to let them be freer than they were supposed to be now in the light of two major crashes, to let them once again do various kinds of dangerous investments uh, with less overview, less oversight uh, than was intended after the 2008 crash. If I might, Tom, you know, a comment here that oughtn't to be necessary but is. Our capitalist system has this peculiar, really irrational business. Banks, like other companies, abuse their positions of power and wealth. When they do it too much and we have a crash, we impose regulations. But we allow them to keep on making money, and we allow them to use the profits they get to undo the very regulations. Sooner or later, they succeed. And then again, abuses start. And then again, we re-regulate them. This is an absurd drama, very dangerous for society. Lots of victims, as the two great depressions of the last hundred years have taught us. But we don't seem to be willing or able to face this repeated kind of craziness by making the sorts of changes that ought to have been made the first time, certainly the second time, but instead we seem to be heading for yet a third time. Mm, yeah. So how, how would you expect this to play out if, if uh, this watering down, well, first of all, is this wa effort to water this down, this is successful now, right? Or is this uh, just a Fed proposal? All the signs indicate that this is now going to go through it is not a complete getting rid of the Volcker rule. It's basically, if you read the fine print, it means that where before banks couldn't take these kinds of risky steps, if they dared to do it and were caught doing it, they would suffer penalties, exposure, and so on. What this new adjustment is, is the banks are free to do what they want. The burden is now on the government, the Federal Reserve and other branches of government, to find that they're doing it, catch them at doing that, prove that they're doing it. So it puts the burden of holding them back from these dangerous speculations and risky investments. It puts the burden on the government, not on them, uh, the way Volcker had originally intended. And remember, Volcker was a widely respected head of the Federal Reserve, somebody who had been a banker all his life. Even he could see what they are now watering down. And so my feeling is we're just going to do it all again. That's why I went over the history. We're going to now see banks desperate to make more investments that are more profitable than what they can do in the difficult economy we face. And so they're going to use this freedom that they've been fighting like crazy for in order to make those investments. And we're going to face risky dangerous investments, and that is going to likely do what it has done over and over again, namely bring us into another economic crisis where yet another Mr. Volcker, by a different name, of course, will stand up and tell us again what Mr. Volcker already told us after the last crash, etc., right, et etc. You can't it's trust pathetic. the banksters. Um, yeah, so, it's, it's a pathetic display, it really is. Yeah, and and uh, how how quickly do you think? I mean, if, by the way, this is following on that. You you said you know the banks are having in a diff, difficult environment. The the big six banks just reported the largest quarterly profit in the history of world banking. Absolutely, they've been doing real real well. 
partly because they have found their ways around the few limited controls that Dodd-Frank, etc., put on them, and partly they were major beneficiaries of the tax cut last uh, right. December. So, so how, how quickly might, you, might this play out? I mean, if, if this is setting up the possibility of the next great 1929-style, 2007-style crash, when would we know? When would we see the early warning signs? What would it look like? Well, I wish I could answer that question, but here's the truth. Nobody can. Nobody knows exactly how and when. Too many variables are involved here. I will tell you this. Since the history of capitalism becoming a major economy in England and then spreading over the world, roughly 300 years, we have had an economic downturn every four to seven years on average. The last big downturn was 2009 by most calculations. So if you add four to seven years, the answer is we're already overdue for a downturn. Anything, the crisis in Italy, the inability of countries like Turkey and Argentina to pay back the loans they took out at the low interest rates of the last several years, any of these things that are currently agitating the world's economy, and I won't even mention Mr. Trump's on-again, off-again threats to world trade, any of these things, if they get underway, will be magnified by the risky bets made by our banks. Yeah, hang on. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Professor Richard Wolf with us, the economist, co-founder, author of Democracy at Work, democracywork.info and rdwolf.com. Professor, thank you. Thank you, Tom. Glad for the opportunity. My pleasure. And welcome back. Oh, we got a bunch of people who want to weigh in on a whole variety of things. Chris in Ridgecrest, California. Hey, Chris, thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's on your mind? Hey, good morning, Tom. Hey, uh, I wanted to pick the professor's brain, but he's gone, so I'll pick yours instead. Uh, My nephew and I were having a discussion over dinner, and he's getting into kind of a lot of stock things. And I wanted to try and give him food for thought about uh, possibly, you know, democratic socialism or something like that. And I started telling him, you know, I thought stocks should be available to the employees of companies first in order to keep the incentive to keep the company together and things like that. And he made the statement that uh, you have to take your stock public eventually. The company isn't worth anything. And I thought that doesn't quite sound right. And I wanted to get your or Richard Wolf's take on it. Well, taking a, take... Does a company have to, have to go public with their stock in order to be worth something? I mean, Coke Industries is a privately held company. You cannot, buy, you, you cannot buy stock in Coke Industries. It's one of the largest in the United States. Um, the same that's, is true of Bechtel Corporation. Bechtel Corporation, at, at one time, I don't know if it's still the case, I doubt it is, but you know, 15, 20 years ago, Bechtel Corporation was the largest contractor literally in the world, and it's a private corporation. You can't buy stock in Bechtel. It's owned by Stephen Bechtel and his family. Yeah. How would you go about correcting or giving a food for thought that that idea is wrong? What talking points would you Well, I would just use? point that out. <laughs> you know, Blackwater is oh, okay. a privately held that's, company. That's, that's, that's you know, great. I mean, there's no shortage of, of, of big, successful companies that don't, that don't participate in stock markets. And over the last couple of years, there have been a number of companies that have what's called gone private. That, that is to say that they bought all their own stock out of the stock market and then ceased to participate, uh, you know, because they didn't want to follow SEC rules. Uh, they wanted to be uh, Ronin, you know, re- renegades. And, uh, you know, I, I, the companies that, I'm, that are in my mind right now, I'm not absolutely certain they're the ones that went private. So I'm not going to, you know, go through the list of names. But, you know, anybody who pays close attention to markets would probably know right off the top of their head. But there have been, been a few. I mean, this happens from time to time. But we've got some very, very large privately held companies in the United States. So... You know, I mean, taking, taking, taking a company public is a way to raise an enormous amount of money really rapidly. And particularly if, you know, if the company is good and has got, you know, a lot of sizzle as well as a lot of stake, you know, and then you get these, these IPOs that are just, you know, breathtaking. Um, but it's basically a way of raising money. You're, you're, the owners of the company are saying, okay, we're going to go from 100% ownership down to maybe you know, 3% or 5% or 9% or whatever it's going to be, and we're going to sell the rest of the company off to the public, and that money then becomes money that the company can use to grow with. Now, privately held companies, instead of selling stock to raise money, borrow money or simply accumulate profits and use those accumulated profits. And with Coke Industries, well, we just don't know because it's a private company. Their, their books are not available to us. So we don't know if they're issuing bonds. 
that are that are being you know uh, sold in a private marketplace, or if they're just so insanely profitable, they're ever able to leverage their own profit into you know developing new companies and buying other organizations and things. But look at all the brands associated with Coke Industries. You know, uh, uh, again, I I don't want to get the wrong one, so I don't and I don't have the list in front of me. But there's a whole bunch of common household brands, of products in the United States, particularly paper products, uh, that that you know you can't buy stock in those companies. Chris, thanks for the call and thanks for watching us. We'll be right back. Hey, I've got to tell you about the world's best chair. Most of us spend over 2,000 hours a year sitting in our office chairs, and if you have back problems or trouble concentrating throughout the day, there's a simple reason. You're sitting in the wrong chair. Take your chair, your style, and your productivity to the next level with an X chair. The X chair's unique anthropomorphic design and dynamic variable lumbar support cradle your body in a way you need to feel to believe. And a more comfortable posture means better concentration and much higher productivity. In fact, if you're a business owner, there's no better way to reward your top performers than giving them an X chair. And the X chair's sleek, modern style will upgrade the entire look of your office. Give yourself and your staff the gift that pays dividends five days a week, year-round. Feel and see the X chair difference by going to xchairtom.com right now. That's the letter X, chair, Tom, T-H-O-M, Dot com or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR. If you're not truly thrilled by the look and feel after 30 days, refer, return it for a full refund. Order today and save 100 bucks and get free shipping. If you go to xchairtom.com right now and enter the code TOM, T-H-O-M, you get a free footrest. That's xchairtom.com or call 1-844-X-CHAIR. We have one here. We love it. xchairtom.com. Welcome back. This program, this hour of our program brought to you by X Chair Tom, T-H-O-M, xchairtom.com, the, the X Chair. John in Elmwood, Illinois. Hey, John, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. Um, yeah, I, I just I have to disagree with you trying to trash on uh, Melania Trump, the first lady. I'm not trying uh, to trash think, on her, well, John. I, I'm, I'm concerned. She's been gone for, for three weeks. The last time I saw anything like this, it was Martha Mitchell in the 1970s. It was just, you know, it, 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 it concerns me, right? Look at what was done to Martha Mitchell. Look at what this guy did to his first wife. You know, Ivana, when she sued him, she said he pulled her hair out, he raped her. I mean, inquiring minds want to know what's going on. It is, he is, after all, our president. She is our first lady. You would think that, you know, the, the American people have a right to know what's going on. Chris in Denver, Colorado. Hey, Chris, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, apropos of the, the free speech TV caller, did Sprayberry Travel ever go public? Your old no, Sprayberry agent? just got, uh, actually not just, it was two, three years ago, uh, was sold to a, a, billion, a multi-billion dollar travel company. So they're, oh, still, they're still there, you know, I think. On... <laughs> I'm sorry, go ahead. You missed out on that, huh, Tom? Yeah, yeah. Louise and I sold our, our stock in the company in 86. We started in 83. We sold out in 86 to our employees. And then our employees, uh, you know, made out really, really well uh, when they sold to this billion-dollar billion company. God bless them. So, yeah. So what I'm seeing with this Trump, uh, and you would agree, you and I would agree that these are Trump lies, but I'm 28 years old and I'm a millennial. And there is this kind of water that I'm seeing some millennials and Generation Y that they're swimming in. And this is this notion of, like, Donald Trump being the meme queen or the meme king, M-E-M-E, like, if you go and virtue signal that you want to build the wall and then you try to get the $18 billion, all the data and the research suggests that that's not going to prevent illegal aliens. Because as you said, they uh, overstay their visas. But they will admit that while they know it won't prevent illegal immigration, that's like an $18 billion virtue signal. That's just going to represent like America as this fortress. Right. And that's kind of the strategy. <laughs> oh yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it's not about trying to to stop people from coming to this country. You want to you want to stop people from coming to this country uh, illegally. Then all you have to do is start putting employers in prison, <laughs> you know? and they, well, nobody yeah, will get yeah, hired. And, like... and you know, if you can't get a job, then you know there's there's a limit to how long you can freeload. And and they've already made it damn near impossible for people who aren't citizens to get welfare programs. So. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, it seems like the intellectual shoe leather of this kind of ideology um, is a guy by the name of Jordan Peterson. And he's been in New York Times. He's, you know, everyone just kind of cites him where, you know, what is true is not what is demonstrably true. What is true is whatever personally 
you know, benefits you here in the moment. And I don't know if you've talked about Jordan or if you wanted to give him any kind of airtime, but he seems to be the yeah. influence. Well, perhaps more importantly, Chris, what is true is what we believe is true. Right. I mean, you know, it's I mean, we used to believe that the earth went around the sun and, you know, functionally that was reality for people. We, you know, and, and Trump has been twisting reality, you know, left and right. I mean, that is that's his whole shtick is is lie big, lie early and lie big and lie often. Uh, you know, for example, you know, the FBI put somebody in my I mean, he said this in his rally in, in Nashville after he he had he had learned that the FBI, nobody put any spies into the Trump campaign. You know, unless it was Saudi Arabia or Russia or Israel or somebody, nobody, you know, no, nobody in the United States was spying on Trump or his campaign. But he made it real. I mean, this is he, he believes he controls reality. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. Call 202-808-9925. And for that slice of Americans who get all their information from hate radio and, and Fox so-called news, he does control reality. Well, the, uh, the plot thickens. The story gets even stranger. And uh, tip of the hat to, oh, who was it here? I had a tweet. Yeah, the, Santa ba- the JJ the Santa Barbarian, who uh, tweeted this uh, Newsweek story back at me. Andy Haley, by the way, tweeting, where is Melania? That's the hashtag. He says, phrases that come to mind, rendition, protective custody, witness protection program, Martha Mitchell, nervous breakdown, ligate, continues, spousal abuse, ICE overplay, CIA, black site, medically induced coma, thoughts and prayers. Okay. So anyhow, I started, you know, an hour and a half ago talking about Martha Mitchell. Martha Mitchell was the wife of John Mitchell, who was the attorney general in the Nixon administration. And he was the head of the campaign to reelect the president. Creep. And, um... When Creep started, you know, when, when Creep was involved in the Watergate break-in and all this stuff, uh, Martha Mitchell started speaking out, and she was concerned about this. And there was this guy, this FBI agent, ex-FBI agent. He'd left the FBI. He'd become an employee of Richard Nixon's. He was working for Creep, the committee to reelect the president. And this guy, Stephen King, not the author, but the, the FBI, former FBI agent, According to Martha Mitchell, this is, this is from an authorized biography by, uh, uh, by McClendon of Martha Mitchell. This is the book about Martha Mitchell. She says, after King ripped the phone from her hand, this is, she's trying to call Helen Thomas at the Associated Press to tell her, well, here's, you know, to, to tell her what's going on. Um, in fact, here's the, uh, Martha Mitchell had been complaining vaguely, this is by, by Jeff Stein's article for Newsweek, Martha Mitchell had been complaining vaguely to anyone who would listen about campaign operatives carrying out dirty tricks against the Democrats. She called her favorite reporter, UPI's Helen Thomas. King rushed into her bedroom, threw her back against the bed, and ripped the telephone out of the wall. The conversation ended abruptly when it appeared someone took away the phone from her hand, said Thomas. She was heard to say, you just get away. Thomas added that when she called back, the operator told her, told her Mrs. Mitchell is indisposed and cannot talk. Marsha Kramer with the New York Daily News tracked down Martha Mitchell a couple days later and wrote, and, and, and Marsha Kramer is a veteran crime reporter. She wrote, quite, quote, Martha Mitchell was a beaten woman, and she meant literally beaten up, with incredible black and blue marks on her arms. A later account in McCall's magazine said that after King ripped the phone from Mitchell, he, quote, summoned a doctor who gave her a tranquilizing shot and saw to it that no more of her outgoing calls would be taken by the hotel switchboard. McClendon writes, Nixon and Creep began spreading stories that Martha was crazy, out of control, an alcoholic, and had a breakdown. Martha then writes a letter to Parade Magazine when she learns that King has been promoted to the chief of security because she went back to her husband on the, term, on the conditions that he fired King, but instead he got promoted. So she writes a letter to Parade Magazine saying, King not only dealt me the most horrible experience I ever had, but inflicted bodily harm on me. In the authorized biography, it says, after King ripped the phone from her hand, she related, Martha Mitchell related, she ran to another room to make a call. So here's a, a spouse inside the White House trying to alert the press to the evil stuff that the Nixon administration, that Richard Nixon is up to, right? The attorney general's wife. After King ripped the phone from her hand, she, she related, she ran to another room to make a call. Again, she was thrown aside while the phone was disconnected. McClendon wrote, Steve, Steve King, this guy, then shoved her into her room and slammed the door. 
Next, Mitchell tried to get to an adjacent villa via the balcony. So she climbs out the window, climbs out, the, climbs out on the balcony, is trying to get to the next, next suite over by jumping from balcony to balcony. Again, she was thrown aside while the phone was, oh, excuse me, here. But King ran out and pulled her back inside. She claimed he threw her down and kicked her. The next day, she slipped downstairs planning to escape, but King spotted her just as she reached a glass door. In the ensuing scuffle, Martha's left hand was cut so badly that six st- stitches were required on two fingers. That's when the doctor was summoned to sedate her. Before the shot took effect, she tried to get away again, according to Martha, but King saw her dashing toward the door and ran over and slapped her across the room. That was in 1973. By 1976, she was dead. At the age of 57. Martha Mitchell. Now, Stephen King, the guy that I was just telling you about who did all that to her, where is he now? Donald Trump just appointed him ambassador to Czechoslovakia. He is your ambassador to Czechoslovakia, the guy who did this to Martha Mitchell. And we're 21 days into trying to figure out whatever happened to Melania Trump. It's all very strange stuff. Anita in San Antonio. Hey, Anita, what's on your mind? Yeah, it is very strange. They need to take, bring her out to, to, to the public if they don't want people to speculate. Yeah, yeah. And, and, the, and this whole thing about Stephen King, I mean, this is just beyond weird. I did not know this when I started this rant at the beginning of the show about, you know, how Stephen King abused Martha Mitchell. I didn't realize that Donald Trump has elevated him to an ambassador position. And the guy's 76 well, years has. old, by the way. Wow. Yeah. Um, I didn't know any of that about Martha Mitchell or any of that. But um, I wanted to talk about the thing with um, Jerry Jones who I despise. I'm a, I, He's the owner of the I Dallas found, Cowboys, a billionaire in, in, right. in, in Texas, yeah. Right, and he testified to basically Donald, that Donald Trump committed a felony. That's correct, today, apparently, or so at least today the testimony be, came out. Might have been yesterday. Wouldn't it be amazing if what takes Donald Trump down is Colin Kaepernick? That would be amazing, because this was the Colin Kaepernick that lawsuit would, where Jerry Jones testified. That would be poetic justice. That really would. That really anyway. would. You've got a keen eye for irony. <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Anita. Great to hear from okay, you. Thank bye-bye. you very much. Yep, good talking with you. John in Everett, Washington. Hey, John, you wanted to talk about the Fed? Yes, uh, Tom. Uh, last week I saw on Free Speech TV a very good video on a show that airs at 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, our time here in the Northwest. And it's uh, about, uh, uh, it's, it's run by uh, a guy named Pirate Television, and the fellow's name is Ed Mays, M-A-Y-S. And he has a site on YouTube that uh, he has two hundred and three videos on. And what he does is take videos at what's called the Seattle Town Hall, where we have excellent speakers. Right, come. John. John, I, I, you know, this show is not a forum for promoting other other well, shows. No, I mean, you know, I was, what specifically what are you calling about, about? Your discussion with Ed Wolf and how you were talking about the Federal Reserve. Right. And uh, the thing that shocked me about this whole video was that. The Federal Reserve had an emergency in 2008, and they gave money to the banks. That emergency is still in effect. That's correct. And it wasn't just the years. banks, by the way. They, they gave money to individual billionaires. They passed out $27 trillion. Yeah, that's what, that's what this uh, video was about. It was just amazing. I couldn't believe the, the uh, information that was coming out. Oh, it's, it's, it's proof of modern monetary theory that creating money out of thin air does not debase a currency. I mean, if, if nothing yeah. else, it's pretty amazing. John, thanks for the call. Charles in uh, New York City watching us on Manhattan Neighborhood Networks, which puts us into every single household in Manhattan. Hey, Charles, thanks for finding us hey, on your dial. How are you? Great. How are you? Good. Uh, thanks. Um, I was calling about um, Professor Wolf and his comments about the lobbyists mm-hmm. and politicians, and I was just wondering, um, you know, I, I searched online for my uh, humor and just trying to put some connection between money and uh, policy that he passed, and it's really hard. I mean, I had a long career, and I could really not find anything, you know, linking him to, uh, you know, on the committees he sits on, the banking committee. Or the finance or the arms, well, you used to sit on those committees. So I'm just wondering, like, over the years, have you seen, like, can you talk about what uh, Chuck Schumer and, and money that he got from banking? I can't. I don't, I do, you know, I don't know specifically about that, Charles. I would, I would recommend you go to opensecrets.org, and you can find there exactly who gave what to whom and how and how much and all that kind of stuff. Dwight in Minneapolis. Hey, Dwight, what's on your mind today? Hello, Tom. Um, I'm 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 uh, wondering now. I'd like to get your feedback on this. Um, if uh, Mueller writes his report and um, 
it comes back where Trump is clear of all charges, you know, they, they're not going to impeach him and everything. Then my question is this. That, well, first of all, that's going to pave the way for the next dictator, a despot, uh, because Trump will be then defeated on the so-called checks and balances. Well, here's an even worse scenario, Dwight. What if Mueller comes out with his report and says, here's 22 crimes that we can prove were committed by Donald Trump or other members of the Trump crime family, and uh, all of them are indictable, all of them are prosecutable, in our opinion. Here's the crimes and here's the details. And because Donald Trump has Fox so-called news, because Donald Trump has right-wing hate radio, because Donald Trump has Breitbart and the Mercer family and Shelley Adelson and the newspapers that he owns and, and you know, the Koch Network and all this stuff, because Trump has got all that on his side, there's this whole large sector of America, about a third of America, that just, I mean, literally... Uh, you know, half of Republicans think that that uh, more than three million people voted illegally in the last election. Any lie Trump tells, they believe. And so, you know, he is right now, the scorched earth policy that Trump is doing is to destroy the the integrity, the perception of integrity on the part of the FBI and, and uh, Bob Mueller. And if he's successful in doing that, then if Bob Mueller comes out and says, yeah, here's the proof that Trump committed the crime, Trump will just say, oh, the guy is lying. And there's a lot of people who will believe him. That's going to be even more dangerous to this republic than, than Mueller clearing him, in my opinion. Well, well, that's my concern. You know, uh, it, it, all of the checks and balances will be defeated. And so we will be uh, uh, totally exposed to any dictator that decides that, you know, he wants to come and be a fascist. You know? Yeah, I think you're right, Dwight. I think you're absolutely right. Thanks a lot for the call. Uh, we'll be back. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. It's Viagra for your brain, the Tom Hartman program. Just don't tell Limbo he'll want some. We'll be right back. This is the Tom Hartman program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Boy, the plot thickens. Donald Trump is talking now about pardoning both Martha Stewart and Rod Blagojevich. And you go, wait a minute. Martha Stewart in 2016 came right out and said she was going to vote for Hillary Clinton. She's been a lifelong Democrat. And Rod Blagojevich was the Democratic governor of Illinois. I think he's sitting in a jail cell right now. He got a 14-year sentence. And Donald, which Donald Trump referred to this morning as an 18-year sentence. He was convicted of 18 felonies, got a 14-year sentence. But in any case, it's just numbers. So, but why Blago and, uh, and Martha? Well, it turns out that there's actually some logic to what Trump is doing. There, he, he, the, he is clearly tying his use of, him, of for the pardon power to his political fortunes and as a as a shout out to people who may have dirt on him or may be being pressured by prosecutors to do something, you know, to, 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 to tell them what's going on, to, to, to spill the beans. And so the, the thing with Blagojevich is he just published an op-ed, an opinion piece. This is from Public Citizen. They just tweeted this. Trump is now considering commuting the sentence of former Apprentice star Rod Blagojevich. So he knows Trump, he worked with Trump, worked for Trump, arguably, who just published an op-ed echoing the president's talking points on the Mueller investigation. The message is clear, stay loyal to Trump and you will be rewarded. So Blagojevich publishes a, hey, you know, Trump's not such a bad guy, peace, and Mueller is terrible, and Trump says, hey, you know, maybe I'll let him out of jail. Martha Stewart, it's a slightly different story. With Martha Stewart, Rudy Giuliani is now saying that Donald Trump should not sit down for an interview with the FBI, ever, because of what happened to Martha Stewart. Martha Stewart, you will recall, was originally investigated for insider trading. The, the theory, the belief was that a friend of hers, good friend of hers, who owned a small pharmaceutical company, which was publicly traded, that... that he told her that they had this blockbuster new drug coming out and therefore 
uh, she bought more stock in his company than she would have otherwise bought, and she made a profit. Okay, that, that was the allegation. And when the FBI in, interrogated her, uh, they said, did you, did you, you know, have this conversation with this guy? It, this is my recollection of the story. Actually, I, I, yeah, I this is, as, as I understand this case, okay, I'm not one of the lawyers involved. But basically, she, she lied to the FBI. And she wasn't prosecuted for insider trading. She was prosecuted for lying to the FBI. Which, by the way, is what nailed Bill Clinton, remember? Perjury. And it's what Rudy Giuliani is afraid will happen if Donald Trump talks to anybody who, you know, he may lie to because he just lies. I mean, he's lied <laughs> 3,000 times in the first year and a half of his presidency. He just lies. He goes to, he goes to, to Tennessee the day before yesterday and gives a speech, lies, nine major lies about big things. So Martha Stewart gets busted for lying and he's like, yeah, I'll partner. And Blagojevich is sucking up to him and, oh, yeah, I'll pardon him. Strange stuff going on. Very strange stuff going on. You know, where does, it, where does all this go? What does all this mean? And how is it that these guys are constantly on TV? Howard in New York City. Hey, Howard, what's on your mind? Yeah, hi, Tom. Um, the uh, Republicans, Trump and Giuliani, seem to be able to get on TV anytime, every any station. The Democrats have no, nobody. They have Ellison and Perez who can't get on TV to save their lives. But I have three suggestions I wanted you to, to think about. People that could represent the Dems the way, uh, you know, Mumbles and Spanky represent the Republicans. One would be uh, Michael Avenatti, if he, for example, declared for, for the Senate. He gets all the publicity he wants, and he seems to me to be a progressive. The second I would recommend would be Joseph Kennedy and bring back the whole Camelot stick. And the third one would be Warren Buffett, along with Ralph Nader, who says the only guy that can beat a uh, bad billionaire is a good billionaire. I'm worrying about the, uh, the, the November elections, unless we get some advertising and some good versions. What do you think? I don't think anybody's going to save us, Howard, and I think uh, salvationist thinking is a dangerous thing. Uh, Warren Buffett may be a, a, a Democrat and a reasonable guy, but he's no progressive. Um, uh, you know, he's not going to save the republic, and he's not going to certainly take on his, his uh, right-wing crank billionaire uh, uh, colleagues. Instead, he's giving away half his money and, uh, you know, to charities, which is a fine thing, but he's not that interested in politics. And I, you know, I just don't, I don't, I, I don't see any of these things happening. What I think we need to do is we need to just buckle down and get involved. We, we need, you know, peop, we need to be showing up at the Democratic Party. We need to be getting inside the party, become precinct committee people. Um, and we need to make sure that not only are we registered to vote, but everybody we know is registered to vote and get ready for this next election because it's going to be a big one. Howard, thanks for the call. Virginia in Oceanside, California. Hey, Virginia, thanks for listening to SiriusXM. What's up? Yeah, I just wanted to make a comment, a quick comment in regards to the pardon. A dictator uh, doesn't care whether you're uh, Republican or Democrat. Good point. Uh, this, is, this is a scary uh, part. Not scary, because I'm not scared of, scared of it or scared of it. But I'm just saying a dictatorship doesn't, it doesn't care. It, it, it washes the Democrat and the Republican, you know, parties. You know, it's who he wants to pardon and when he wants to pardon. And um, I just want to say that, and I wish somebody would write a book for Dummies 101, uh, How to Fight for Our Democracy, or, or give us something to read, tell us what to do, like you just said right now. Get out and vote, get right. to the meeting. Somebody needs to tell us. A lot of us are working. Uh, my friends aren't voting. I can't get them to vote. Uh, give us something to read. Uh, you know, in our time when we get off of work, their, ha their lives are busy. Um, yeah. I, don't, I just wanted to make a comment. Yep, uh, you, you did, and it's a good one, and it's a real problem, Virginia. I mean, we had you know only about a third of young people voting in the last couple of elections. It's it's uh, although I have a feeling it's going to be a much much higher participation in this election. But the the, yeah. the unfortunate reality is that most people who vote are wealthy white people, and of course they went overwhelmingly for Donald Trump in the last election. Or not overwhelmingly, but they they went. Actually, they went overwhelmingly for, for Hillary Clinton, but not, not, in the, not in the states that mattered. 
Um, so, you know, anyhow, Virginia, thank you for the call. Well said. Charles Nopalaka, Florida. Hey, Charles, what's up? How you doing, Tom? Good. It's on your mind. Um, okay. Okay, great. Um, I wanted to, to call and say, first of all, China. Um, I think we're going to find out at the end of Mueller's investigation that China was also part of the land and, and trying to influence the 2016 presidential campaign to get Donald Trump reelected. And now I got to jump on something else that, that, that's killing me. And I just need you to, to understand that I'm frustrated with this Democratic leadership from the House and from the Senate because in 2000 and what, 2009, before we had the, um, the Obama, Obamacare pass, the, mm. the ACA, mm. you know, Republicans, they made sure that they held town hall meetings. They lied. They, they, they cheated, whatever, but they got those people all riled up. But they got them to understand that they did not want anything from, from the Obamacare or anything else. And to be we don't have to lie. I'm sorry, say it again, Charles. Your phone just broke up. I'm sorry, we don't have to lie. As far as yeah. telling the American people what's going on with this Mueller investigation, how the heck did Pompeo become Secretary of State, how did this lady become um, um, the, the, the head of the CIA? Just too much stuff passed by, and we can't say it's going to be a blue wave. Blue wave, because if there was a blue wave, there's no one out here leading the charge. And, and it's, it's to me, yeah, we don't. We don't. Charles, leaders are, are a good thing, and they're fine. But we don't actually have to have them. Uh, it's you and me, Charles. Thanks a lot for the call. Welcome back, Tom Hartman. Here with you, Ron, in Berrien Springs, Michigan. Hey, Ron, what's on your mind today? Hello, Tom. Tom, uh, to get to, uh, first of all, Blagojevich, he, if he frees him, that would be a thumb in the Democratic uh, organization of Illinois because uh, Blagojevich's heavy sentence was in, in part because he uh, disgraced the uh, Democratic organization. And he had, may have secrets that if Trump, he goes into the Trump camp, that he could uh, possibly use against the Democratic Party in Illinois. Oh, he may well. And he knows Trump. He was a, he was a contestant on the Celebrity Apprentice. Yes. And as far as the Praetorian Guard, uh, Betsy DeVos's brother, uh, the founder of Blackwater, has already been mentioned as a replacement for some security elements uh, by the Trump administration. Yep. Now, to my point, if I may, the uh, new book that's come out by an aide to uh, President Obama, he has expressed uh, President Obama's own uh, possible re uh, thinking that he may have, what he said, I, I may have been 10 to 12 years too soon in my uh, position in history. And I'm sorry, but we, the next leader we choose for the Democratic leadership, we have got to make sure that that leader does not fall into that same category. He must be strong, and he must be willing to fight. Now, as far as President Obama, I, 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 I'm sorry, I have to say, I think he jumped the line due to the Illinois Democratic Party pushing him forward over Hillary. If Hillary had been allowed to be the president for two terms, which I, I think she would have, she would have laid the groundwork for President Obama, and the courts would not have been lost to us. That's my opinion, Tom, and I'm sticking to it. Okay, you may well be right, Ron. Who knows? I, I you know, I, you. I don't do well with these uh, if-then uh, hypotheticals, but eh, who knows? Jeff in West Monroe, Louisiana. Hey, Jeff, what's on your mind today? Oh, hey, Tom. I, I appreciate you taking my call. Sure. I, uh, yes, sir. Well, I, I was, I was kind of, you know, I was going to call in about some internet censorship issues, but, but listening to the show here. Um, I was kind of wondering if I could get your take maybe on uh, what the danger of the alt-right is. I, th I think broadly speaking, the, the big danger that's represented by the alt-right is the, is the progressive coarsening of our political di dialogue in the United States and the empowerment of, of uh, the hard-right fringe. I mean, we're, you know, the, 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 the big danger is the merger when the corporate side gets in bed with the with the hard right, essentially fascistic white nationalist side, as to a large extent they've already done, then your country is in serious in a serious crisis. And I say that they've already done that in as much as the fact that the media will refuse to call, for example, the the uh, the shooter in Las Vegas. Uh, we now know that the guy was, you know, a conspiracy theorist. He was a Tim McVeigh type. He thought Tim McVeigh was a really cool guy. He was talking about the anniversaries of Waco, all that kind of stuff. He was one of these anti-government alt-right guys. And yet, no media will refer to him as a domestic terrorist. And, oh, wow. he, and yet, he okay. killed more people on American soil outside of 9-11 than any other 
domestic terrorist attack in the history of the United States. And right, right. or at least, you know, more you know, white people in contemporary time. You know, I, there there were massive slaughters of Native Americans and African-Americans, you know, centuries or more ago. But but, you know, this this right. situation right now. So, yeah, well, I was, uh, I was kind of wondering, you know, like about, about the corporation merging with the with the alt right. You know, uh, all right people are constantly getting kicked off of uh, Twitter and Facebook and all these other things. Right. And as far as the, the shooter there, uh, he, he had a non-white girlfriend, so there goes your white nationalist theory. And all these white nationalists want to That doesn't mean anything. Themselves. I mean, there's the, all they, all the we one part of the... No, no, hey, Jeff, uh, a large, and thank you for the call. A large part of the white nationalist theology actually involves this whole idea of racial hierarchy. And strangely enough, Many of these white nationalist groups will tell you that the white race is not the ultimate superior race. It's some of the East Asian races that are the ultimate superior race. And, uh, you know, which leads to these awful racist stereotypes about people from Japan and China that, you know, they're, they're, you know people will just assume if you, if you look Asian, oh, you must be really great at math, that kind of stuff. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a racist. Tra- all, all of this stuff is like embedded in this whole thing. Rob in Kings Park, New York. Hey, Rob, what's up? Hey, Tom. Thanks for uh, taking my call. Big fan. Thank you. I was um, at a uh, parade with my son on Memorial Day for the Boy Scouts, and I'm like, oh, my God, that's Tom Swazi, a congressman from Long Island. Mm -hmm. And as an avid listener, I said, boy, what would Tom do? I said, I busted up to him. I said, hey, Tom, I'm a 30-year teamster, and, uh, you know, thanks for coming out to support uh, Memorial Day. He's like, great, go in and some people. And as he stepped aside, I gave him the old Columbo. Oh, and by the way, <laughs> I hate big banks. And it stopped him in his tracks. And I said, I disagree with your vote last week. And he said, well, even if, I think he lied to me. I don't I have to research it. Even if um, Dodd, uh, Christopher Dodd and Barney Frank supported it. And I said, I don't know that. And yeah. he said, yes, they, they supported my vote and kind of got muscle. Well, Chris Dodd and Barney Frank are both now lobbyists for the banks. Oh, I knew that. So, I so if they supported his vote, that's not a that's not a that's not a good thing because they're lobbyists. Rob, thanks for the call. Get out there, get active. Tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 